Hey y'all, welcome. It is Monday, right? I have to check, <laughs> make sure it's actually Monday at noon central time, 11 a.m. where I am. Today we're talking about colorism in hiring and how it is a barrier to diversity and equity in the workplace. And this is an interactive live, so I will be saving time at the end for your questions and comments, so go ahead and cue those up. But I do want to start by just sharing how oftentimes when we talk about hiring, because I've been on hiring committees myself in my previous career past, and a lot of times we talk about the best candidate for the job. How often have we heard these types of phrases? Are the best fit? Who's the right fit for our company? Or who's the right fit for our school? Um, who, who's the top talent, right? And so we already know that a lot of these things are already biased and that our assumptions about who's the right fit is based on our own cultural beliefs, right? Even our ideas about who's the best candidate for the job, those things are socially conditioned. Ideas about professionalism, ideas about why someone would we would work well with some people versus others. All these things can be culturally conditioned. And I also think it's overrated to have people that quote unquote fit in because I don't have to be your best friend to be a great colleague. So <laughs> that's a conversation for another day in terms of how I think biased hiring happens. But obviously, you know, if you're tuning into this live stream, you're interested in how colorism impacts hiring. So that's what I'm going to be breaking down today. So not only are a lot of hiring practices biased and based on cultural assumptions, false assumptions and notions, but colorism plays into that as well. Colorism is a factor that is often overlooked when we talk about racial disparities in hiring and in the workplace. Go ahead and say hello if you're tuning in, especially if you are on LinkedIn or YouTube, because I can't really see your profile names. Hey, Instagram folks. I want to share a few research studies, just like I did last week. If you didn't see last week's live, it was really good. So go back and check it out. I talked about colorism in the school to workforce pipeline. So this week, when we talk about hiring, we know that, OK, you've overcome colorism in school to get your degrees and enter into certain workplaces that require degrees, because obviously not every career path does. But if you're applying for jobs that require some type of formal education, you overcome the colorism in the school system, you overcome the colorism in that educational context, only to face colorism when you're in the job search phase of your career. So there are a few things I want to highlight. The first study looked, well, the first two studies actually looked at white people who were making hiring decisions and white people who were doing interviews. And this is really important. So I recently shared two types of colorism. One was intra-racial colorism, which is when people of the same race discriminate against each other based on skin tone. But there's also interracial colorism, which means that someone of a different race can also perpetuate colorism against us. And so this is what's happening a lot of times in the workplace. And because not enough people acknowledge interracial colorism, these problems and these issues go overlooked, right? So if you are one of the people who has the mindset that, oh, well, colorism is just black people hating on other black people, then you're gonna miss the fact that even your white hiring managers, even your white interview board members are also having biases against darker skinned people of all races, right? And so the first study looked said that for white people making hiring decisions, skin tone had a greater influence on their choices than the applicant's level of education and years of work experience. Okay, so let's just let that sit in the air for a second. <laughs> 
That is shocking to some people who are newer in their journey of learning about colorism. I know some of my day ones, y'all, we've already been down that road, right? Y'all are not shocked by that. So again, when we think about the barriers in education itself, not only are lighter skinned people more likely to get the education they need, right? But then they're also more likely to be hired even if they don't have higher education. It's layered, very layered. And so when I talk about compounding privilege, that is what I'm talking about, compounding privilege. So if you're lighter skinned, not only are you, is your journey through the school pipeline facilitated and bolstered and supported, but even if you don't do well in school, even if you don't attain higher education, even if you don't get that extra certification, even if you don't get that extra degree, you're still more likely to have success on the job market than darker skin applicants who, who felt like they have had to go and get those extra certifications or get those extra degrees. And I'm kind of passionate about this because this is a lot to do with my story. And I know a lot of dark skin people talk about this and feeling like, oh, well, no one's going to acknowledge me without certain credentials, right? Because I have to overcome not only sexism, but also racism and not only racism, but also colorism, right? And all these other things. So that's one study. A second study also looked at white folks, and this is Lance Hannon. The, this researcher is called Lance Hannon. He coined the term white colorism, again, to debunk the myth that colorism is just, you know, Asian to Asian or black to black or um, indigenous to indigenous, you know, that white people are also engaging in the process of discrimination based on skin tone, even amongst people of the same race. And so in Lance Hannon's article, he also looked at white interviewers, and they were more likely to see light-skinned Latino and African-American applicants as more intelligent, right? So it's not a matter of, and this is, again, regardless of test scores, regardless of other demographic factors, regardless of, um, again, education levels. So regardless of other data that is present, what his study showed was that white people who were interviewing, you know, in this study, applicants, if they were African-American or Latinos with lighter skin tones, they were automatically perceived as more intelligent than darker-skinned African-American and Latinx applicants or interviewees. And so this is, I think, when you understand that white people also perpetuate colorism in the workplace, you understand why the scope is a lot bigger than people think it is. You understand why the impact of colorism in corporate culture, in jobs of all types, in workplaces, in um, business, right? That it, the scope of it is a lot broader than just being bullied or teased the way a lot of conversations around colorism try to limit it to. Um, and so this is why colorism is systemic. When we talk about colorism being a systemic issue, this has a lot to do with why. It's because regardless of the race of the person who's doing the discriminating, it can still happen. So it's not just a black cop, for example, who would discriminate against a black um, civilian, right, and assume that they are guilty. But even white cops are likely to assume darker skinned, black and brown and BIPOC individuals as being more quote unquote criminal, right? I know I'm kind of going away from the hiring <laughs> piece, but I just wanted to kind of reiterate that because 
as I continue to do this work every day, it still astounds me how many people are still unaware. And so I have to do my part to make sure people are aware. And if y'all tell me like, okay, Dr. Webb, everyone in the world has said they understand, I'll stop. But for what I'm seeing, that's not the case. Okay, so the last study, this study wasn't on hiring or interviewing specifically. It was more so um, an overview of colorism in Latin America. And so a part of what their research talked about was not hiring in particular, but the, the stratification in terms of career paths and job status. So they, they just noted that in Latin American countries, so this is not Latinx people in the US, this is other countries in Central South America, the Caribbean, et cetera. So other countries outside the US that for Latin Americans with lighter skin tone, they have higher positions in business, higher positions in academia, so universities, college professors. They have higher positions in politics and government. And they have lighter skin Latin Americans also have um, greater occupational prestige. So the higher status jobs, the jobs that people associate with higher socioeconomic class and that sort of thing, they are disproportionately filled with light-skinned or European Latinx individuals. And so on the same token, on the flip side, darker skinned people in that job market are often seen as um, having less prestigious jobs, less prestigious occupations, right? And so I'm trying to tread lightly here too, because in describing the hierarchy, I don't want to reinforce or condone the hierarchy, right? I'm not saying that some jobs are inherently um, superior to others, but in thinking about class dynamics in different countries, there are certain occupations that are attributed greater value and greater status in society, right? And those jobs are disproportionately filled with lighter skinned individuals, right? So that, those are three research articles. Again, if you're really into the research side of colorism, I have an index on colorismhealing.com, my website, which I have been collecting hundreds, getting close to a thousand articles, books, documentaries, all detailing the research, kind of research that I'm talking about going back over a century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's really, we've been talking about this for a while, just not on a, a large enough scale, I think. Um, and I had a couple of student interns who helped me over the years to keep that database up to date. All right, so now I kind of want to share some insights. That was just some of a sample of some of the research on colorism and hiring and in the workplace. And I want to kind of extrapolate some key takeaways based on that and based on other things that I know and that I'm aware of. The first one is that you can't create racial equity in the workplace if you ignore colorism. I've been saying that since the dawn of my platform, but it bears repeating because again, people still don't know. And it's okay if you don't know, like that's fine. Like there's all, we all don't know something, right? And so that's why I'm gonna to continue to say these things because I'm fully aware that there are still plenty of people who haven't been made privy to what's going on. And so again, all of your efforts, whether you are looking to, as a recruiter trying to have more diversity in your recruiting, or if you are an HR manager and you're saying, okay, how can we do um, better in terms of workplace diversity? All those great efforts are, you're, it's like running on a hamster wheel if you're not looking at colorism as part of the equation. Because the racial identity that we check on the census or the check boxes that we put on the job application form are only a part of the equity equation equity equation. I feel like that's a, 
repetitive. That might be a little bit repetitive to say equity equation, but you get what I'm trying to say, right? The whatever job candidates or members of your workplace check on forms and surveys as their racial identity or their ethnic identity is only one part of the equation. And oftentimes, the what we check in those boxes has um, less immediate or less... Um, yeah, a less immediate impact than what we actually look like. And so for something like colorism, I talk about this more in an upcoming live stream, so make sure you're subscribed if you want, to, want me to go deeper on this. When we think about things like profiling and racial bias, there are studies and research that shows that the darker a person's skin tone is, the more severe the racial stigma, the more severe the racial stereotypes are, right? And so similarly, speaking of that, my other point is that you can't mitigate racial bias if you ignore colorism. And so I'm going to fully unpack this. It might be in next week or the week after where I talk about how when we talk about racial profiling and racial bias, we're doing ourselves a disservice if we don't have colorism as embedded into the content because so much of unconscious bias is based on what we're seeing, right? If we're talking about linguistic bias, so much of that is based on what we hear. If we talk about um, uh, bias in terms of not just dialect, but also accents, right? That's something that came up in the previous live stream is how a person's accent might be an intersection of colorism. And so that, that we have to talk about what is the person actually hearing. And so when we think about racial bias, especially in things like profiling and interviews and uh, being followed in stores, having the cops called on you. So much of that is based on what people see. Because if you walk into a store, even sometimes if you go for a job interview, people might not have the data on what your racial or ethnic identity is, but they, they see what you look like. And so, so much of the unconscious bias that we've been talking about in the DEI stratosphere is definitely interwoven into the, the visual cues, the visual signals that people get. And again, I focus on colorism, but that could also be hair texture or hair style. That could also be height or weight or you know, visible disabilities, right? And so it's a range of things, but we have to acknowledge that there are some forms of our identity that are clearly visible in every space that we walk into, and there are others that aren't. Even though they, they still make an impact, but the degree to which they might influence that situation is based on the degree to which the other parties involved are, are made aware of it, right? Um, okay, so things I want you to question, regardless of what your role is or what kind of job you have, we should all be questioning these things, right? And so what are we likely to assume is, looks professional, right? Or how, why are we deciding that someone is a good fit for our company? What, what is that based on? Why do we tend to assume educatedness or articulateness for some people? Why do we assume that candidate X is just more friendly? Why do we assume that candidate B is just more approachable, right? Like what, let's articulate what it is about them that gives us that feeling or that vibe just to check for, for bias, right? So you might have a gut reaction like that's fine. I believe intuition and, and checking your gut. Um, but also there's bias. And so if we want to mitigate our biases, we have to be willing to ask ourselves the hard questions. Um, and then here's what I want you to do. So two things, um, and then I'll go to your questions and, and right after this. So if you're in a meeting, if you're in a training, if you're in a casual conversation about diversity in hiring or equity in hiring, 
bring up colorism. Do not let that conversation or that training or that meeting end on racial equity in anything without putting colorism on the table, without making sure that colorism is embedded in the content. And then the second thing is ask yourself and your hiring colleagues the following questions. Or for example, questions such as, am I raising the bar for this darker skin candidate in ways that I did not for the lighter skin candidates? Okay. A second kind of question you might ask is, are we requesting additional proof of information to judge their competency or their fit for the job when we don't request the same additional information for other candidates who are lighter skinned? And so one example of this, a few people, uh, mainly on Instagram, so shout out to my Instagram folks, a few people sent me this video clip of a dark-skinned sister, a dark-skinned black woman. She was wearing like this bright pink color, it was really fly. And she was telling the story of how she had to do 10 interviews. She had to go through 10 interviews to get the same position as her light-skinned friend who was only required to do three interviews. Okay? And so if you're on that hiring team, if you're on that hiring committee, Somebody, somebody at the table, somebody in the room needs to be asking, why are we making candidate X do 10 interviews when we only make candidate Y do three? Okay? Um, and again, these candidates were the same race. They were the same race. But one was light-skinned and one was dark-skinned. All right, let's look at your questions for your homework. I just gave you your homework, right? <laughs> and then your affirmation. I am willing to question my current approach to hiring and reflect on my own biases so that I can create greater equity and diversity within my company. Now, if you are not in a hiring position, I still want you to say, I am willing to question my current biases, right? That's an ongoing process, folks. We already know that though. I'm preaching to the choir. All right, let's look and see if we have any questions or interesting comments. Thank you, Savannah Christine, for the badge on Instagram. Thank you so much for that. Um, let's see. Okay, cool. No questions from the Graham fam. I see some comments coming through on... Oh, hey, Juana. How you doing? I see some questions coming through on LinkedIn and YouTube. Hey, Cynthia Smalls. Aw, yay. Oh, and if you... I don't think I introduced myself. <laughs> If you are, is this your first time joining me? I am Dr. Sarah Webb, the founder of Colorism Healing. Yes. All right. Um, got Stella on Instagram. Hello from London, UK. Hey, Michael. The parrot. I like it. Um, hey, Michelle. Tuning in on YouTube. I usually see you on Instagram. That's so cool. Switching platforms on me. I'm here for it. Hey, Patia. Yes. All right. Kimberly McCowan. Um, Sherm CP says, hello from San Diego. Thanks for discussing this important issue. I've gone through this and it's great to bring awareness about this and have candid conversations to create change. Yes. Say hello to San Diego for me, Kimberly. <laughs> um, Kimberly says, this is very true and I've experienced this as a light-skinned black and white person. Peace from London, Spectrum of Salome. Hey, Spectrum of Salome. Says, how do we change century-long colorism mindset? So that's a good question. How do we change century, century long, centuries, multiple centuries long mindsets? So my strategy is the overall strategy. I'm going to be generic for the sake of time. And actually, we, got, we have 10 minutes. Um, one is to figure out how those mindsets were created. 
So for anyone interested in how to unlearn anything is figure out how it was constructed and then work backwards from that, right? So if this mindset was created through legal policies and procedures, then how do you unwrite or revise those legal policies and procedures to change the mindset? If this mindset was created through formal education, right, through a national education program, then that's your channel for then changing that mindset. Now, the problem is, Kimberly, is that mindsets like colorism, white supremacist delusion, anti-black delusion, these things were created through multiple means. They were created through multiple means that were strategically implemented for centuries, right? And so we can't fool ourselves. We can't be delusional and thinking that, oh, well, I'm just going to tell my daughter she's beautiful, <laughs> And that's going to solve colorism, right? No, we have to be just as strategic as the colonizers were, right? We have to be just as strategic as the oppressive forces that implemented these mindsets and these ideologies. Um, and so that's, you know, a very general answer, but we can continue the conversation. And I see one other question on LinkedIn. What do we say to make an impact? From my experience, I have seen people of color being hired in the hiring process and still applying biases because they have said they fit in but don't think many other people of color will fit in. As a consultant, this really sat with me a while. Colorism has not, is not something I had considered a lot, so impactful to hear from you. Yeah, thank you for saying that, Stella. Um, this is precisely why I do these live streams, why, why I am here. <laughs> I feel like this is, I feel like I was partly incarnated on this planet to do this work. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think the first thing is explain to them that colorism is just as problematic as sexism and racism, right? And I think aligning colorism or elevating colorism to the status of things like racism and sexism, you are going to um, sort of sway or convince others who are equity-minded or who, are, who want inclusion, who want diversity, to start to pay attention to these things, right? Unless they are outright bigoted, which is possible. There are some people who don't care if they are racist, they love it, and they're going to stay that way, right? But for there are plenty of people, though, who don't want to have these inequalities. There are plenty of people who don't want to create an uninclusive workplace, right? And so I think part of it is reminding them that, you know, to the degree that you think racism is bad or sexism is bad or homophobia is bad, like colorism is one of those systemic issues, right? It is a form of bias, discrimination, oppression, marginalization. And so we have to, again, stop making colorism about bullying. Stop making colorism about, oh, dark-skinned girls have low self-esteem and they just need to love themselves. Like, that's a huge reason why people aren't acting or make, moving the needle on this issue is because people want so badly to trivialize it as just, well, if you think you're pretty, then nothing else matters, right? Colorism is so much bigger than that. Um, and so that's, I think, the first conversation you have to have is making sure that you understand colorism to then be able to explain it to them that it's just as, it's no different from them discriminating based on someone's race. Okay, so let's see, we have another comment here. So many times we're told by quote unquote them that it's the merit that matters and we shouldn't talk about first black accomplishments. But what do you do when the person offending and the one you have to report to 
are tone deaf on the slights slash gaslighting regarding colorism. Um, okay, so I'm not sure I fully understand that question. If you want to clarify a little bit, I'll come back to it. Um, but I will acknowledge the merit fallacy, the fallacy that we live in a meritocracy. It's simply false. Not that you, we, not that we never win anything based on merit, but even my ability to acquire merit is often based on the fact that I had another form of privilege, right? Because people talk about education. Someone was saying like, oh, well, you shouldn't consider your level of education a, a type of privilege because you worked for that. I was like, true, but certain privileges I had allowed me or put me in a position to have certain successes in school, right? Like my mom has a college degree, which made certain things in education easier for me than someone who's a first generation college student, right? Not that you can't have success, but there are just more barriers and, barriers and obstacles to that, right? Um, but also I see what you're saying too, because this conversation came up with um, Kamala Harris and it continues to come up about, you know, the first black vice president. And like, I for one don't feel represented by Kamala Harris. I don't see my story or my identity in her at all. And it's fine if other black people do, right? I'm not saying that other black people shouldn't see themselves in her, but I don't. And so I have a right not to feel like someone doesn't represent me, right? So someone who is very, very light-skinned or white-presenting, someone who is multiracial or biracial, I don't really feel like they are representative of me. I don't, when I see them achieving success, it doesn't automatically say, oh, well, I can do the same thing, right? And so, yeah, I see that gaslighting a lot when people say, oh, well, you should just be happy she's black. And I'm like, even if, you know, she identifies as black, her experience is so different from mine that I can't say I can't look to her as an example of what's possible for me, right? Okay. Um, <laughs> says Stella says I want to look into colorism further to educate myself and how to build this into my framework. Where do I start other than here? That is such a good question. So I think this is a good time to announce that I'm going to be releasing a workshop soon. So I'll just put that out there. Um, but where you start, I think there are, again, I could point you to the website, colorismhealing.com, because there are books. If you are someone who learns well by reading, I think there are books that give you a broad overview of colorism as a global issue. And they, they talk about colorism across the globe. And they, they're written in a way to where you get the broadest overview possible in the span of a book, right? Um, so I have a list of those on my website. I also have a pretty extensive archive, so I'm just, I'm gonna toot my own horn here and just promote my own content because that's why I created. I've been creating content for over a decade. Also, it's the 10 year anniversary of Colorism Healing, so be on the lookout for in-person celebrations in a neighborhood near you. Um, but yeah, there is, I think the, the basics are covered freely given on the internet by myself and plenty of other people, right? And I think what we're doing here with these lives and with workshops that are coming up is how do I then take that basic knowledge and apply it to my specific situation? So these Q&As, I love being able to interact live and get people's questions. Um, but yeah, Stella, I'm glad that you tuned in. I'm curious to know how you, how you got the notification for this live. Did I invite you on LinkedIn or did it just pop up in your feed? <laughs> I'm glad you clicked on it. Okay, LinkedIn user, for some reason I'm not seeing your name. So many times we're told, oh, okay. I think this is the same question, sorry. 
All right. Case in point and example, this would be the first black person in this role. Then someone on the hiring committee says it shouldn't be about race but merit. But oftentimes black folks have the merit, but it's just that we're the wrong color for this highly visible role. Yeah, LinkedIn user. I wish I could see your name. It might be your privacy settings or something. But um, I think you've, you've answered your question really well. And so I, I'm just going to reread your comment because I think the comment itself is already insightful. And I'm coming up on two minutes to the half hour mark. So I'm going to wrap this up soon, folks. Um, but this LinkedIn user, and I'll be able to see when I log into LinkedIn, I'll be able to see your name. Um, but it says, case in point uh, is an example that would be the first black person in this role. Then someone on the hiring committee says it shouldn't be about race, but merit. But oftentimes, black folks have the merit, but it's just that we're the wrong color for this highly visible role. So LinkedIn uses this also reminds me of a comment or this mindset that, you know, someone asked the question, how do you balance excellence with diversity? And I was offended by that question. I was like, the assumption that those two things have to be mutually exclusive is offensive and biased and anti-black and you know white supremacist and all these things right because just because you know you're advocating for greater diversity and inclusion doesn't mean you're sacrificing excellence doesn't mean you're sacrificing merit which is part of the understanding that we have to we're trying to bring people into is that like you're saying linkedin users that there are there's so much merit in diverse people, right? And people of diverse appearances, body types, skin tones, hair types, genders, all the things. There's infinite amount of merit in all these other groups of people. What you have to start realizing is that the assumptions, going back to those underlying assumptions of what is talent, what is excellence. I did, I did a conference presentation on this. I said, we have to stop saying inclusive excellence. Um, or excellence that is inclusive. Because what you're trying to say is that, oh, we're going to bring these people who are different and get them to assimilate into our notion of excellence. And I'm wearing the excellence shirt. <laughs> and so we're not trying to get you to assimilate into our idea of what excellence is, because I think the vernacular of a Southern queer black teenager is way more excellent than the boring vanilla vernacular of some Midwestern middle-class white man, right? And so uh, we have to kind of implode or explode <laughs> our assumptions about excellence in the first place, about merit in the first place, because it has for far too long been built on the standards of cishet middle-class white men to begin with, right? And so the, the very foundations of these assumptions have to be questioned as well. And I'm over time, folks, but I'll be back next week. If you miss me, <laughs> I'll be back next week. I am talking about, oh, EEOC cases. I think that's what I'm talking about next week. I know I'm definitely talking about Equal Employment Opportunity Commission cases on colorism specifically, on skin tone bias specifically. That is likely next week, but if it's not, maybe it'll be in two weeks. Anyway, thank you for joining me. Thank you for spending your precious time focused on this very, very important topic that is far too often under addressed in society. And I'll see y'all next week. Much love.